We'll be reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Hear God's word. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, the cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one of these things, no one in those days anything of what they had seen. If you're standing, please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are here, and you are our God, and we thank you for calling us into worship this morning. Lord, we praise you for who you are and what you've done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see Jesus as he is. Lord, that we might behold his glory and that we might react appropriately by falling on our knees in worship today. Lord, we thank you and praise you. In Christ's name, amen. So today we're going to look at the phenomenal event of the transfiguration. Uh, it's kind of a, it seems like a bit of an odd picture here. Jesus goes up on a mountain and he's transformed and there's bright light and voices from heaven and clouds it seems a little bit out of place with christ's ministry but it's a turning point it's an important point in jesus ministry where he's moving from one phase to another and so we see this passage in a broader picture our goals for today are threefold one we want to follow the messiah we want to trace where Jesus has been so that we can see where he would go and how that applies to us. Secondly, we want to understand the Messiah. We want to see Jesus in his glory that was shown here on the Mount of Transfiguration and what it tells us about Christ. And thirdly, we want to worship our Messiah. When we follow Christ and we understand who he is, our response ought to be worship before our King. And our God. So first, let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. And let's view this sort of like a flashback. You know, when you're watching a movie, and it introduces you to a really intense part of the film. Maybe there's fighting or arguing, or, or you, it's just really intense. And you know that the whole movie is about this one scene. And they start with that. And they show you just enough so that you can ask a couple of questions. But then they move you back in time maybe 72 hours or three weeks or whatever the director decides. And then they give you those events leading up to that climactic scene. Now this will be helpful for us because we'll be able to view everything through the lens 
of this event, what's coming, and we'll be able to put pieces together. So here are Peter and James and John on the mountain of transfiguration. But what was the road that got them here? Let's go back in their memory so we can follow Jesus to this mountain. So remember that Jesus had become a public figure. He was about 30 years old. We don't know very much about him before that. There's one story in Luke where he's 12, but we don't know much. But at about 30 years old, he bursts onto the scene with his baptism. Mark tells us that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water immediately, he saw heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now that sounds familiar. These are almost the exact words from the father that we hear in our passage today. You see, Jesus here is about to embark on his ministry. He's about to go out and he is glorified and verbally encouraged by the father who declares the sonship of Jesus and his absolute pleasure in his son. So as Jesus goes into his ministry, he goes with the father's authority, his approval, and his pleasure. His baptism signaled the start of Jesus' ministry of miracles and preaching. Now, immediately when Jesus goes out into his public ministry, he makes bold claims about himself. He knows himself, and he knows who he is, and he's not shy about telling people that. In chapter 4 of Luke, Jesus went to the synagogue, and he was reading from a passage in Isaiah 63 which said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set a liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now in this passage that Jesus is reading, he's, this is a messianic, messianic passage is a picture of, of God promising to Israel a Messiah, an anointed one, someone chosen, who would come and redeem his people. You see, we might miss this at first because we're blessed to be in an independent nation. We're an independent people, and we rule ourselves, a government by the people, for the people, right? But when Isaiah 61 was written, this was written to a people who had been conquered, and dragged from their homes and brought to a foreign land. They had watched loved ones be killed. They had seen their homes destroyed and their city turned to rubble. They had seen the holy temple of God burned before their eyes. And so as they sat in a foreign land, wondering where God had gone, wondering what had happened, here comes Isaiah 61 with the promise of a Messiah, someone who would save them. Someone who would redeem them. Someone who would restore the glory that they had known. They remembered the times under King David and King Solomon when the nation had prospered. When the nation had become great and they had respect from all their enemies. But here they sat waiting for a Messiah. Now when Jesus read this passage, the people of Israel were back home, but they were still under Roman rule. They were still governed by someone else. And so this passage would have been precious to them. 
They're awaiting this Messiah. God has promised, and here they sit. And remember what Jesus said. After he had finished reading these things, he said to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So in essence, Jesus is saying the Messiah that you've been waiting for is standing right in front of you. I am him, and I'm here. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to redeem you. I'm here to be the Messiah that God promised. Now, through this messianic lens, the disciples watched Jesus' ministry as he healed the blind, the sick, and the demon-possessed. They saw him calm the storm and feed 5,000 from a couple loaves of bread and a few fish. They watched him as he raised the dead. They heard his teaching, and they watched as he <clears throat> confronted the religious leaders with supernatural authority. You see, the disciples were eyewitnesses to all of this as they watched Jesus fulfill this messianic role. When John the Baptist wondered if Jesus was the Messiah, he answered by telling them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. See, Jesus' life clearly demonstrated that he was the one sent by God. He knew that, and he was helping the disciples understand this as well. Now, just prior to going up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus turned to his disciples and asked them two simple yet profound questions. First, he asked them, who do they say that I am? Who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And so here the disciples, they get it. They see that Jesus is the Messiah. They know that he's the chosen one. And instead of Jesus patting them on the back and saying, great job, he immediately transitions. And he reminds them that his messianic mission looks really different than what they think. He tells them right away that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day raised. See, what a change. While the disciples could understand the role of the Messiah in the traditional sense, in terms of power, and strength, and healing, they didn't understand the wisdom of God through the power of Christ's redemption of his people through his sacrificial death on the cross. Christ's death had no place in their mind. Peter even rebuked Jesus when he said this. You see, there was more to Jesus than they realized. And they needed to see him in a different light. Perhaps we're not that different from the disciples. We think we know who Jesus is and can say the right things about him. We know all the Sunday school answers. But what do we say about Jesus? Do we see him for who he really is? Or do we see him for who we want him to be? Said another way, do we primarily love him for the benefits that he gives us? Or do we love him because of who he is? 
Like I mentioned, there is a change in Jesus at this point. By the end of the chapter, we will hear explicitly that Christ is on his way to Jerusalem. He sets his face to Jerusalem, and he is focused on getting there. He goes to fulfill his messianic missions that the disciples did not expect. A journey that would ultimately lead him to the cross at Calvary. And now we've come back to where we started. The disciples with Jesus going up the Mount of Transfiguration. So let's look at this event in order to understand Jesus better. What kind of Messiah is Jesus? Well, we see that Peter and John and James go up the mountain. And before them, Christ's appearance was changed and altered in a significant way. In verse 29, Luke says that his appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. In a parallel account, Matthew tells us of the same event. And he says that Christ was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, or white as lightning. In Mark, he records that he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, notice that the similarities. All three of these guys, they, they record that there's this white, blinding, otherworldly, intense, radiant light that comes from Jesus, that emanates from him. And yet they all use different metaphors and they use different descriptions. It seems to be because they are laboring to describe something that is beyond their earthly understanding, beyond the limits of our earthly senses. This word transfiguration uh, is where we get our word metamorphosis from. Now, when we think of metamorphosis, uh, we think of the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. It goes in looking like a worm, and it comes out looking something beautiful with wings. Or we may think about a tadpole. It looks sort of like a fish, but then given a few days, it looks completely different. It's like a frog. Now, Jesus' physical appearance was changed from that ordinary man to a shining with radiance, the glory of God. Because of his deity. Now we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's not as if he gave up being a man here or he became something different than what he was already. So, what is happening here at the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, I lean on R.C. Sproul, the late theologian, who loved to refer to this event. He said, His humanity served as a veil that concealed the splendor of Christ's deity. Yet there were moments when his glory shone through. It was as if the vessel of his human nature was not strong enough to conceal it at all times. Here is a moment where his divinity was not contained, but burst forth in splendor too great for words. Now notice that the disciples are waking up to this scene. Well, I'm guessing when they fell asleep, they weren't expecting that they would wake up to something like this. Part of them must have thought, yes, here's the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. We know him. He's going to lead us out of Rome's tyranny and bring glory to God and bring his people back. What a glorious display this shows us of Jesus. Now we, we realize that they were only partially right here. Let's look at the three connections or look at three connections that we can make here in this passage. We see first Jesus has a covenantal connection to the past as a prophetic office. 
Now, when we talk about the prophetic office, we're talking about God speaking to his people. And so in the past, he spoke through the prophets. And we know that Jesus is our great prophet. In verse 30, tells us that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus. Now, we're not going to probably recognize the significance of this because we're not of the Old Testament. Now, the disciples and any good Jewish reader would immediately recognize that Moses was the lawgiver and Elijah was the chief prophet or the one that they would equate with the prophetic office. And so what we have here is we have Jesus standing in the midst of the entire Old Testament. The Old Testament that was made up of the law and the prophets. But he's not standing here as a part of history. But as a culmination of all the promises of God that had come before. See, Luke picks up on this in chapter 24. Uh, when Jesus met the two men walking on the road to Emmaus, uh, he said to them, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures concerning himself. So the, in the Old Testament, God chose to relate to man, his creation by way of covenant, a relationship that he guarantees by his word. Now, rather than treating us like the dust we are, he created us from dust. He chose to love us and live in relationship with us. See, from the beginning, we sinned, and there was a need. There was a break in that relationship. And so all of Scripture and all of the Old Testament pointed to a Messiah, one who would come and make things right, redeem and restore his people. And Jesus came, and he fulfilled the covenant obligations. He was the obedient to the law and was our ultimate prophet. See, standing between the two most revered prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus stood out as something far higher and greater, so that the writer of Hebrews might say, while Jesus was a prophet, he would be counted worthy of more glory than Moses. The second connection we see in this passage is a future connection to Christ's priestly office. You see, verse 31 reveals to us what Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about on the mountain. It says that they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, the word departure here uh, is the word exodon in Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, and I don't suppose many of you are either, but I think we can all see the connection. The exodon is the word where we get exodus. So this departure of Jesus is the exodus of Jesus. Now, that's amazing. I mean, let's think about that. Here's Moses up on the mountain with them. And remember back in the Old Testament, in Genesis and Exodus, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They were forced to be slaves for 400 years. They were mistreated. They had to do backbreaking work in the hot Egyptian sun. Their infant boys were murdered as Pharaoh tried to control their population. And from this condition, God heard their cries. And he called Moses in the wilderness. And he sent Moses back to his people because he remembered the promises he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Moses went back. And he rescued the people 
God showed his power through 10 plagues so that when the people of Israel left Egypt, they left as conquerors, not as slaves. But they never even had to lift a sword to do that. God had rescued his people. Now, this exodus was a key moment in redemptive history. It displayed God's covenant love and salvation to his people in a mighty and dramatic way. In fact, the rest of the Old Testament looked back at this as a pinnacle moment of God's strength and covenant faithfulness towards his people. They now look forward to the day when God would send another Moses, a Messiah of God who would rescue his people and display God's power once again. And here's Moses standing on the mountains, the man God used in the Old Testament to bring about this great exodus. And what's he talking to Jesus about? He's not talking about the exodus that he witnessed in the Old Testament. No, he's talking about Jesus' exodus that was soon to take place in Jerusalem. An exodus that would be far greater than the one he had witnessed and exceed all that he had imagined. Here was Moses talking with the greater Moses about a greater exodus. You see, he was our great Messiah, Jesus Christ. Peter had just said who he was. And here he is in his glory speaking with Moses and Elijah about the great exodus that would soon take place, the ultimate exodus. But again, the disciples didn't understand the nature of his mission. You see, the coming exodus would bring salvation. But this would happen only if there was a high priest, one who could enter the Holy of Holies, come before God with a sacrifice strong enough to atone for our sin. Now, reading from this side of history, we know that this departure of which they spoke, this great exodus, would only come through Christ's death on the cross as he placed himself under the full wrath of God for our sins. This is the one the writer of Hebrews looked to when he said, when Christ appeared as a high priest, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, Jesus was the long-awaited one from God, whose messianic role included the office of prophet, priest, and thirdly king. In verse 34 and 35, we read, uh, while they were saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, when the father refers to my son, we know that he refers to his covenant promise to David and David's line. In 1 Chronicles, we hear God speaking to David as David wanted to build the temple. God came to him and said, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. I will raise up your offspring after you and one of your son, own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And so we see God the Father in a cloud of the Shekinah glory, the glory that was spoken of in the Old Testament, comes and declares the kingship of Jesus. Luke has reminded us over and over again that royal blood flows through Jesus' veins, that he's of the, the house of David in the line of Judah. 
He's the greater David, the promised king who would return to save his people. But again, the disciples did not understand the nature of his kingdom. Similar to the baptism that signaled Jesus' miracle ministry, the Father's words here are nearly identical. And this inaugurates his trip as he goes towards Jerusalem. But we see irony here. This trip begins with the king of royal blood raised in exaltation on the Mount of Transfiguration. But it ends with the king's royal blood dripping from his body as he was raised on the cross in ultimate humiliation. So what is our, our reaction to this? Let's look once again at the disciples as we ask this question and ask, what should our response be? Well, the disciples made the mistake of missing who Jesus was for who they wanted him to be. They had clear ideas of what they wanted from Jesus and what it meant that he was the Messiah. They constantly needed reminders that his plans were different than theirs. Perhaps we're not that different from them. We are okay with receiving from Jesus the things that we want. But when it comes to suffering, discomfort, or times when things seem out of control, we tend to want to give him some advice and tell him how to do his job. Like the disciples, though, we need to think, we think that we know him, but we need to see him for who he is and not who we want him to be. Like the disciples, we need to be quiet. We need to learn to listen to him in his word. Secondly, when we look at verses 28 and 32, we see that the disciples went up on the mountain to pray with Jesus, but then they fell asleep. Not the first or the last time we'll hear something like this. Now, sometimes in our daily walk with the Lord, we get tired. We get bored. Sometimes it's hard to stay awake spiritually. We might read our Bibles and pray and go to Sunday school, youth group, Bible study, whatever. But it often feels like we're going through the motions, kind of humdrum. Perhaps you struggle to spend time with the Lord at all. You may not see the value in spending time personally with the Lord. Or maybe you do and just can't seem to prioritize it. You go to bed each night thinking, ah, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow's a great day to start. Well, how did the disciples wake up? They saw Jesus in his exalted state. While they witnessed his transfiguration, we see him in his word with eyes of faith as he awakens our hearts to his glory. God calls us into communion with himself. And like a good father, he is patient and continually reminds us that we are welcome to come to him. Not because we are so great or because we're so disciplined, because we're so worthy or we deserve it, but simply because he loves us as a good father loves his children. Finally, once the disciples were awake, they knew two things. Listen to what Peter says to Jesus when he wakes up. He says, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You see, they knew that being in his presence was good. And they wanted to stay in his presence. And simultaneously, they wanted to do something. They wanted to build something for Jesus. They wanted to build a temporary shack 
so they could stay in his presence. Now, sometimes isn't this how we react to God's glory? We may have a mountaintop experience or, or have a time when we feel especially close to the Lord. And our first thought is, what can I do now? What can I build for the Lord? What can I do for him? However, in our passage today, it's clear that this is not the proper response. Peter was cut off when he was saying this by the cloud. And God said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We must learn to remain in his presence, listen to his voice, and fall down to our knees in worship. So often we want something that we can do for God, but instead he often calls us simply to worship his son. In closing, look at the words of the old hymn. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So when we see him in his glory, may it remind us what he has already done for us. May we fall on our knees in worship of our great Messiah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are God and that you are our God. We thank you that you have called us and that you have sent your son to live the perfect life that we couldn't live and die the death we couldn't die, Lord, that we deserve to die. Lord, and you offer us eternal life through his blood. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are a God who does so much for us. And we ask you would help us to worship you, help us to know you and honor you and love you more each day. We thank you for our exalted Messiah. And Lord, we turn again to you in worship. In Christ's name, amen.